Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. We've had over a thousand programs uh, here, uh, many of them live streamed uh, since the pandemic began. Uh, we were faced with a, a big issue. You know, if you if you just have programs for people to come and and hear very interesting speakers, but everybody has to come in person, what do you do during a pandemic? So we figured we had two months maybe off of, of having to be closed, and what will we do? So we started doing these live streams. We had the the uh, technology already, and uh, we had this great uh, staff, very talented, uh, and so. What were we going to do? That's what we did. We, we did about 10 or 15 programs in those two months, and then it turned out to be two years worth <laughs> that we had to do that. Um, but but it was really great that we had this facility. Um, for those of you who don't know, we, only, we had this facility for about two years before the pandemic hit, too. So that's our story. And uh, we have time and time again had such great authors, and we, we actually have a local uh, Person here today, Paul Bolanek from from uh, San Francisco Law, which is a new name, right for uh, for the law school here at San Francisco. You see, the UC Law School in San Francisco it used to be called Hastings, um, and he has written a book on Rome, um, and it's about restraint, conflict, and you know what happens, what happened in Rome as a result of the culture of restraint. Now it's kind of funny. And I, I thought it really a great topic because, you know, how often does restraint come up in our culture? You know, it's not like a, an ideal of ours to be restrained. About the only places in art, if you're a really good actor and you're emotionally restrained, it's more powerful. That's about the, one of the few examples we have where we know what the power of restraint is. But the power of restraint held the Roman Republic together for many, many years, many, many, many years. And so... We're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about sort of what was the same and what was not the same about then and now. So thank you very much for joining us, Paul. Thank um, you very much, George. And thanks for writing about this. Perfect timing uh, for an election year for it to come out. So first, how did you decide to study this topic? You, you mentioned that it was your PhD thesis. So how did you decide that that was what you wanted to work on? Wow, what a great question. So... Um, <clears throat> It started off life as a, as a PhD dissertation because I went to lunch one day with my PhD advisor and she said, and we'll probably get into this, she said, we know that the Roman Republic runs on competition, mm -hmm. like a car, runs, that's its gas. What makes it stop? Like what, <laughs> what keeps it from going off the rails? And I sat there, I was like, wow, that's a really good question. I have no idea. And she said, why don't you go write about that? Mm -hmm. And so I sat down and started thinking about it and started just reading, 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 reading and started making lists. So like what stops people from doing stuff they want to do? Mm -hmm. You read these old stories the Romans tell and they will say someone wants to do something bad. Mm -hmm. What keeps him from doing the bad thing? Is it threat of physical punishment? Is he going to go to jail? Is it going to, you know, what is it that's stopping from doing it? And and, this was before hell, right? Yeah, it's before hell, right? It's, it's, <laughs> that, no, that's a really good point, right? Yeah. One of the things that is not the answer is nobody ever says the gods will punish you. Right. That just doesn't happen. So that's a different story from many cultures and, and, and religious beliefs. And so you ask yourself, what is stopping them from doing what they want? Because they're human, right? They want to do things that are going to be antisocial and selfish and stuff. And what you see over and over again is appeal to a certain set of values, Mm -hmm. And the values are things like you're not acting well, you should be more moderate. 
Mm. You should be more temperate. You should be more um, uh, modest, right? And when we hear these words, they sound to us a lot like, like moral virtues, right? Well, I'm going to get ahead of the game a little. And I think what happened was is that, that, that Christianity picked up these values in the ancient sources and then sort of turned them into personal values. Mm-hmm. The book argues that these are not personal values. These are political values. Mm-hmm. In Rome, when you say be modest, it is a political virtue that allows you to function inside of their society and inside of their political structures. So what's going on here? We've got social norms that direct how people act inside of a political system. And I can expand off that a little bit, but that's how it all got started. Yep. Very interesting. It's a, a very interesting. I think it, we, we can't understand, especially a lot of people are very interested in how is America compared to Rome? What, do we, what can we learn from Rome, the Republic, you know, being in place for 450 some years, something like that? That's what we'd like to do with our democracy. But, you know, we are always worried that we're going to lose it, et cetera. Um, and how did they do it? How can we learn from that? But there's a big, big difference. And one of those big differences is the basic cultural ideals, as you just mentioned. And if you say, you know, these, as you said, the moral values uh, that, that are picked up, you see in all the writings, and you focus on that a little bit too, uh, you know, when they say you should not lust, they don't say lust is a sin. They say if you do too much of it, you, 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 lose, sight of, of, you, you lose sight of your restraint. And if you lose sight of your restraint on that, we can't trust you in this. But if you do a little bit, and, you know, in Rome, a little bit was a lot <laughs> for now, uh, that's okay. It was not a problem, right? It's not a social problem, basically. I think when you say, if you do this, we can't trust you, finishing that sentence really makes the point of the book. It's can't trust you to do what? Right. And the answer is participate in government. Because mm-hmm. if you're the kind of person who has fancy dinners, if you're the kind of person who can't control himself... We can't trust you to hold a government office. Mm-hmm. Now, why? Okay, now, we, yeah. here we've got to back up a little bit right. to understand yeah, the culture values. Yeah. So I, I think of this book kind of in four steps. And step one is where we started with that conversation with my advisor. So why, this whole book starts with a question, why Rome? Mm-hmm. Like, why does this little village on the Tiber River end up conquering everything from Scotland to the Euphrates? Mm-hmm. Why? Okay, why, as opposed to anybody else, Right. And the answer people have come up with, there's a lot of answers, but the big answer is that Rome has this really peculiar cultural trait. Its aristocracy is hyper-competitive with each other in a way that no other ancient people are. If you conquer three barbarian villages, your son had better get four or he's a failure to the family. This is in their houses. When you walk into a Roman house as a young boy, the death masks of all of your ancestors are on the wall of the entryway with a little plaque underneath each mask saying, like, what this guy did. Hmm. At a funeral of a relative, there's a giant parade where everyone wears the death masks and gives speeches saying, I am so-and-so's great-grandfather, and I did these awesome things. I conquered these people, and I did... So you can see there's this, like, this, this strange, competitive... Um, the other example I point out is, how many of you have ever been to Athens? How many of you have ever been to Rome? Okay, in Athens, whenever you look at a building, it's beautiful, it's very nice, it's... Hmm. A, in Rome, when you look at a building, it's got somebody's name slapped on it. You don't see that in Athens. That's a cultural, that is a physical trace of a cultural trait, which is, see this awesome thing I did, everybody look at me. So it's unusual in the ancient world, right? So you have this extreme hyper-competitiveness. This, of course, is what drives competition and what drives empire. One guy conquers this much, everyone else has to get a little more, a little more, a little more, and that's why the empire expands. That's why Rome as opposed to any other village. Okay, but then step two, right? Mm -hmm. If everything is competition, why don't they just start killing each other immediately? 
Mm-hmm. Like why 450 years of, of actually running a republic functionally? And this is where the restraint stuff comes in. Mm-hmm. Think of, many of you maybe have heard the story, the legend of, of Cincinnatus. Mm-hmm. Okay, this, if, I, if you don't, the people of Cincinnati may know this story. This is George Washington's <laughs> favorite story. Cincinnatus is a, uh, a Roman nobleman. He's out plowing his farm. Uh, his, he, by himself, by the way, he's very humble, right? He's hum- his own farm. And then enemy is approaching. And so the Senate comes to him and says, Cincinnatus, would you please be our dictator? Be our general, the dictator. And he says, okay, I'll be the dictator. And so he goes off and he conquers the enemy. And then he goes back and says, I'm no longer dictator. I quit. And he goes back to his farm and just keeps plowing. Now, whether or not this is true, I have no idea. But it doesn't matter. What matters is we can learn from the legends that a culture tells us about what the culture values. Mm -hmm. So they hold this up as exemplary behavior. But don't you see what a restrained man he is? Mm -hmm. He gives up space to other people. He's humble. He doesn't have riches. He doesn't have wealth. So this is the ideal. But if you run a government like this, a republic, it actually works. You see why? A king doesn't need to be modest or restrained. He's the boss. Mm -hmm. But if you want to run a a system where there's no king, you have to make space for everyone to have a chance. Mm -hmm. So you have to inculcate the value that I must step aside in order for other people to have a chance. So you tell the boys, what? Legends like this one. Mm -hmm. So they learn that's proper behavior. So you're saying basically that whether or not the Cincinnati story is an accurate one doesn't matter as long as it's held up as an ideal, sort of the way the cherry tree and the chopping down the cherry tree. Is. Exactly. What, what kind of society tells a story about young George Washington who cannot tell a lie? Right. It's one that, I, well, can I pause on this for a minute? Sure, go right ahead. So much. <laughs> it's one that expects children to obey their parents. Right. It's one that expects children to be truthful. And this one's always funny to me. It's one that has absolutely no problem with eight-year-olds wandering around with axes unaccompanied. <laughs> Nobody thinks this is weird, right? George's <laughs> dad is not like, George, what are you doing with the axe? <laughs> George's dad says, why did you chop down my tree? Right? That's what he's concerned about. So the story tells us something about the culture. Mm-hmm. And what does it tell us? It tells us they believe, truly believe, that in order to run a republic, you need to have people who are morally upright. Mm-hmm. Now, again, whether we think this is true is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Whether they think it's true is the most important point, because they convince themselves of it. Well, one of the big points, of course, is that an oligarchy, uh, which it was, uh, needs to, the, all the members of the oligarchy need to trust each other. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite things about trust is if you went, go back to the George W. Bush administration in, in the cabinet, the first, the first uh, four years. And in the cabinet, who were the trusted members? If you just go by, you know, who's trusted in the, in the uh, administration by the public? And everybody is under 40 po- points on that score where that's trust, whether they trust whether or not, except for one person, Colin Powell. Mm-hmm. Colin Powell is in the 60s, something like that. That doesn't mean he's perfectly trustworthy, you know, but he's trusted by the people. They're not. So what do they do? They, they kind of set him up to, to, to put him in a situation. And, and why is it that oligarchies do that? It's not that, it's, it's not that the honorable people are the ones that are trusted. It's the ones that they can trust to work along with them to accomplish their goals. Right. And so, so if someone is too honest or too principled so that they might pull the curtain down on what they're doing, they don't trust them and they're not part of the thing. So I think that that's an important part of it because when people talk about trust in a Christian culture, they think about this just kind of an honest trusting and the person mm-hmm. must be virtuous and so on. You can trust a bank robber to do a good job if he's got good mm-hmm. skills at being a bank robber, right? So, right. so it's, it's, it's a slightly different version. So 
Sorry, I wanted to... No, no, that, that, yeah. that's very well put, which means that <clears throat> what the trust we're talking about is the trust that if you and I are both nobles, mm-hmm. and if we run for office, I trust that you're going to stick around for a year and then you'll step down to give me a chance. Mm-hmm. And you trust that I would do the same with you. Mm-hmm. These values that we think about modesty and moderation and temperance, all that, that we feel are personal. Again, it's political. It what, it's what allows the system to actually run. I should step back a second. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How does Roman government run? Mm-hmm. Um, this is step three. Roman government runs basically like this. Every year you have elections. There are multiple offices to be filled. The top two are called consuls. They command the military, and they go off in different directions and conquer different people. The next bunch down are called praetors. They handle judicial matters. Then there's the next bunch down that handle taxes and finances. And, of course, it's younger the, the further you go down. You kind of work your way up the ladder, right? None of this is written down. There's no constitution. Um, the age limits that I just talked about a moment, they're put into law like 350 years after the republic is, is formed. For 350 years, it's done by tradition. Mm-hmm. This is like the British constitution, right? It's all traditional. It's not written down. How do you make a traditional agreement work? Well, you have to have a bunch of people who trust that it can work. What's the only way you can make them trust that it can work? You inculcate in their brains since the time they're little boys that there's a proper manner of behavior. And then you say to them, and if anyone steps out of this proper manner of behavior, they will hurt the republic very badly and they're bad people. Mm -hmm. Okay? Now, for a long time, if someone steps out of line, and of course they're human, so people you know, occasionally do, how do you stop the bad behavior? Remember I asked, like, how do you stop? The number one way they do it is actually they form a physical group of noblemen. They walk up to the malfeasance and physically look at him in the face and say, you're acting badly. You're being a bad person. You need to stop, okay? And you should be ashamed of yourself. And repeatedly in the sources, the person goes, you're right, I'm sorry. And, and phys- they, they describe, he put his head down and began to weep. Mm-hmm. Right? This happens multiple times. Again, whether it's true, I don't know, but the ideal is that this is supposed to be the proper response if you're a bad person and you've been corrected. And then they say, okay, you've been corrected, you can come back into the fold now. Mm-hmm. So they build this entire model of governance, believing that personal um, behavior is necessary to it. Now, I hope you can all see the problem. <laughs> if you say, my system of government functions only when everyone acts morally... What's the predicate? You're terrified of someone acting immorally because mm-hmm. they're not just a bad person. They're going to bring the whole thing down. Do you see how the, the seeds of moral panic are now available to us? That's a problem. Yeah. yeah. You have a great thesis in your book that, that you know, a lot of people, when they look at Rome, they say that uh, the wealth that was brought in after they conquered Carthage and everything made the families too greedy and etc. But greed is a relative uh, function of how, how greedy, how, how rich everybody else is. And so I think you point out very well that that's probably not the impetus of the the failure. The impetus is that the pressure from this restraint culture began to cause fissures instead of pull things together. Very interesting thesis. So um, it's too bad we don't have time for all of Roman history here. I know. Because it's very interesting. Everyone sit down. This may take a while. (laughs) So, but... Um, why don't you talk about, so it's been going on fairly well, you know, with lots of problems, mm-hmm. but, and, and one of the points that you, you mentioned about how if someone was reproved by everyone else, that they would hang their heads in shame and maybe even cry. And some of that probably was performative sure. nor in, 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 in not, not so sincere, but they had to fit within a certain framework to continue to be trusted. So, and that went on for a long time without almost 
Without much violence, not no violence, but without much violence. I, no, I would say none. I mean, none. there is no political violence that we know of between 509 B.C. when the Republic is founded and 133 B.C. No assassinations, no mob rule, no nothing. None of that. It's incredible if you think about it. And we haven't done that well. Yeah. <laughs> not even close. Okay. So, um, so the first kind of crack. Why don't you tell a little bit of the story of yeah, the crack first, of the cracks? The first crack. <laughs> so, as I said, you... You have a system of government where you believe, and everyone believes, that proper moral behavior is necessary to get the republic to run. You've sown the seeds for moral panic, mm -hmm. right? So what happens inevitably in human affairs when we can no longer quite define what proper behavior is, especially as things start to change, right? You mentioned a lot of money starts flowing into Rome with all of their conquests. Mm -hmm. um, Moreover, generals, before when they conquered things, they'd go off to some part of Italy and then they come back and it was a very quick sort of thing. Now they're away for years. And when they conquer things, it's like Greece, mm -hmm. right? It's not two barbarian villages. It's enormous. Um, there's a great story that one of the generals comes back with so much money from his conquest that the, the citizens of Italy do not pay taxes for 130 years. It's like being in Alaska, right, with all the oil. I mean, could you imagine, right? An American general goes off and comes back and says, all right, everybody, no income tax for the next century and a quarter, <laughs> right? Wouldn't that be great? That's the kind of level of, of wealth that is now poured in. Mm -hmm. And it's inevitable that when people see that, they start to say, not um, look at all that wealth. They start to say, maybe he's a lustful sort of guy. Mm -hmm. Maybe he's not trustworthy. Maybe that general is a little bit too powerful. Maybe he's not really moderate the way he's supposed to be, right? You can see that beginning of that moral panic. So you mentioned the Gracchi brothers. Mm -hmm. the, the moment of crack, the first bit of violence, is a young um, nobleman of a very, very wealthy and powerful family. And he begins to look around. He sees some problems in Rome. And one is that the urban poor have started to proliferate a little bit. And this is because wealthy landowners in Italy have started taking a lot of land for themselves and the people who used to be on that land are now out of a job and they have to come to Rome and now they don't have jobs. And he looks around and he says, now, an economist would look at this and say supply and demand and all things. But as a Roman, how does he view it? It's a moral issue, right? It has to be because there are greedy and luxurious people out there being greedy and luxurious and we have to stop them. Who are the greedy and luxurious people? Well, they're very wealthy senators, as it turns out. So here's this young man accusing wealthy senators of being greedy, immoral people. And we know what happens when there are immoral people afoot. Mm -hmm. The republic is about to fall. Mm -hmm. But here's the token. By the same look, the senators look at him and say, young man, that is out of place. Mm -hmm. You are getting above your station. You are immoderate and immodest. And that's the sort of person who would destroy the republic. So now you've got both sides morally panicking and saying, not just I disagree with you on policy, but you are an immoral and bad person. And we know what that spells mm -hmm. until the, uh, um, the argument reaches an absolute head. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, Gaius Gracchus, I'm, I'm sorry, Tiberius Gracchus, um, he pushes a law that would strip the senators of their excess land. They're not supposed to have a certain amount. They are having a certain amount. And he pushes it and pushes it until he reaches the point where one of his colleagues is trying to veto it. He removes his colleague from office. And then the Senate panics and says he's broken all of the rules of modesty and immoderation. And his own cousin, who is another senator, says, everyone follow me if you want to save the republic. They rush out into the square. There are benches around for the day of voting. Um, they smack up the benches against the ground. They turn it into clubs. They attack him. They beat him and his followers to death and throw their bodies into the river. This is the moment where violence first meets the Roman Republic. And the impetus is the belief that this is an immodest and immoral man. Mm -hmm.
And that's the first start. Because now violence is in the game. Mm-hmm. And once that happens, what happens to trust? Mm-hmm. Can you really trust that anyone else is going to have your best interest, not best interest, but mm-hmm. is going to play the game fair? Or is it time to maybe start arming yourself? Mm-hmm. And that's where we've got a real problem. Yeah. Um, so his younger brother, mm-hmm. 10 years later, adds to the crack. His, his, <laughs> his younger brother's a little understandably miffed about his older brother's murder at the hands of all these senators. And he starts to cry even louder. The senators are immoral. They're, illu- they're, they're luxurious. They're terrible people. They don't even care about the rules. And, and he attacks them even more strongly. Um, he, he's multiple laws that he passes to strip them of various powers. Ultimately, the consul does the exact same thing. He calls out some, some uh, troops, um, showers his Gaius' his supporters with arrows, and then chases after him with a mob. And here he is getting stabbed to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the next brother dies. Mm-hmm. And by this point, it's very obvious that violence is going to be part of the system from here on out. Almost immediately after this, one of the... Um, I'm sorry, to, I, I back up a second. Um, there's a job called a censor, uh, where we get the word censorship from. One of their jobs is to kick bad people out of the Senate for being immoral. And one of the censors says, we're going to kick out the bad people who allied themselves with Gaius Gracchus. Mm-hmm. The bad people are now so-called, they're not willing to be censored. Mm-hmm. So no, you're the bad guy for, for attacking us. And one of them actually orders uh, his guys, his, his slaves, um, to grab the man, the censor, and throw him off of a cliff. Mm-hmm. And on, in that moment, there's a moment of panic and, and other people have to get involved. They have to be physically separated. But it's very obvious that now violence is part of the mix. Mm-hmm. And Gaius, you know, heats it up. And so I think from here on, and this is the whole second half of the book, is watching the moral panic get worse and worse and worse. With both sides, all, there's not a both sides, there's an all sides. Everyone accusing everyone else of being an immoral person on the verge of destroying the, the republic. Um, full moral panic mode. Yeah, and I, I don't want to draw too, too tight a parallel between Rome and, and America, but I thought it was fascinating that the Gracchus brothers' names were John and Robert. <laughs> well, be that as it may. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I said to you before when we were discussing, uh, the tagline of this book is, um, the narrative of decline can be self-fulfilling. Mm-hmm. If you believe the country is going to hell in a handbasket, as the Gaius and, and Tiberius, uh, the brothers did, as the senators did, as they watched the brothers, as people down the line believe, you might make panicked and freaked out decisions mm-hmm. that actually end up fraying the so- social fabric worse than it would have been until bit by bit, you actually bring about the result that you didn't want. So let's bring it right down uh, to today then on that big issue, because I think that's a really good point about your book. Um, the The... Ability to compromise and, you know, have two parties and to argue with each other and then come out with a compromise on most issues is a crucial part of the function of any kind of uh, system that's not run by one authoritarian, right? And um, there have been times of worse and not so, you know, not so cooperative, et cetera, before, but rarely have the both parties just been saying, you're you Republicans are not democratic. You're not in favor of democracy. You're trying to overthrow our democracy. And the Republicans saying to the Democrats, no, you're, you're the ones who are trying to overthrow the democracy by taking our leader and putting him through courts. And it has, it, so they, they both are using the same kind of more extreme arguments. And so one of my questions is, you, you talk about the arc of history and the arc of Roman history moving in this direction. Where on the arc of deterioration uh, does that place us? 
Um, I always like to say we are, we're, we're not Rome, but we might be. Mm -hmm. um, our founders were very intentional. They looked at the problems of Rome and they said, let's figure out how we can set up structures to avoid this. Federalism and separation of powers and these very important things that keep... Remember, Roman government is not constitutional in the sense ours is. It, mm -hmm. it really is just a gentleman's agreement to run a system where people take turns in office. But the gentleman's agreement can be undone by a lack of trust. We, we're a little bit more structurally settled, and I think that's a good thing. So I don't panic exactly as much. But the, where we are in the arc is we're not at the point of, of constant violence the way the Romans got themselves to. Mm -hmm. They got to the point where, there, there's a point in my book where I say, prior to the Gracchi brothers, there simply isn't violence. It just doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, there's a, there's a riot in, and then I list like 17 years in a row, there are riots every single year, mm -hmm. passing laws, doing whatever it is. There, there's mob violence almost constantly. Mm -hmm. We're not there, and that's a wonderful thing. What gets you there, though, is the moment where you say to the other person, it's not just that I disagree with you on a policy. It's that I think you're an actively wicked person who wants to destroy the republic, and therefore I must defeat you at all costs. Mm -hmm. That's the dangerous moment, the point of inflection, because that's when the violence, I mean, violence is the very next step, right? What do you do There's with no other solution to that, with, that issue? And, I, and as I write in the book, like, these people, the Romans convinced themselves that if immoral people are on the verge of destroying the Republic, there's no other option other than to kill them. Mm -hmm. It's not good enough to send them to the censors to get in trouble. You can't walk up to them and say, now you're acting badly. Please stop. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's not working anymore because that's a key part to the book too. When someone used to hang their head in shame, now they're responding, how dare you judge me? You're a bunch of bad people. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you, you have no way you can shame me. I, I don't listen to you. And then what is the solution? There isn't one. Mm -hmm. Now, the Romans, of course, were perfectly adept at applying horrific violence to other people for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. Once they learn to do it to themselves, mm -hmm. what stops that ball from rolling? Mm -hmm. and, and the answer is practically nothing. Yeah. So after that period of time, we move forward to the time of Sulla, Catiline, so on and so forth. So we can talk about about that. And is Cicero an observer of that period of time or he's later, right? Cicero is a little later. Later than that. Later, you know, he, we'll get Catiline, to... yes. Yeah. Sulla, um, Cicero was a young man. He was a, a right. teenager at that time. Okay. Um, Sulla is the, the worst of the violence mm -hmm. before the actual end. Um, Sulla is a general. Uh, he, he started off life as an impoverished son of a noble house that had spent all of its money. Mm -hmm. um, he grew up in the company of actors with a very sort of vivacious life, but wanted something noble for himself. So he went off and, and had a military career, um, rose through the ranks and expected good things for himself. Um, his opponent in the world was a guy named Gaius Marius, who was a, um, uh, a peasant um, from the middle of Italy, who also rose through the ranks and expected great things of himself. The higher and higher he got... And as it happened, one of the great accidents of history is that just as Gaius Marius finally reached the consulship, and everyone expected, oh, this is nice, he'll be consul for a year and then farewell to you, mm -hmm. a group of German barbarians went over the borders, invaded Italy, and he spent the next six years defeating them, every year becoming consul over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, imagine somebody being president for four or five terms in a row because we're attacking some external enemy, right? right? So he has a very high opinion of himself, and he does not want to be challenged. These two butt heads... And eventually the moment comes where one of them, Sulla, um, gets a command. He's going to go attack uh, Asia Minor, which will be very lucrative and powerful for him. Gaius Marius says, I want that command. I'm the greatest man in Rome. It's mine. Mm. And he has the people pass a law giving it to him instead. 
-hmm. Sulla is furious. He believes that Gaius Marius is, get ready, immodest, immoral, uncontrolled, intemperate. He should be done. He had his chance. He's had his five, six terms. He should be finished. Where's my turn? Why don't you make space for me? He orders his army to come and march on Rome. Now we're past mob violence. It's an army attacking fellow Romans. And what's their age difference? Is there, is there an age difference? Uh, Marius was much older. He's probably 15, 20 years older. Okay. Uh, maybe a little bit less than that, maybe 15 or so. Um, so that's the other thing is that, that you know, Marius yeah, is saying, young man, this is my place, right? right, and, right. and Sulla is saying, old man, you've had your time. Right. right. But because there's no structural control here, the only, the only control is what the people vote for. And you can kind of, mm-hmm. you, you can bribe your way into that if you really want. The attack, again, is this is an immoral attack on how the Republic is supposed to function. And then the real horror, horror begins. Sulla begins slaughtering all of his political enemies in the streets. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of people. Hundreds of people die in, a, in just a, a liquidation of his enemies. He goes off to the east. He's there for a little bit of while. While he's gone, Marius comes back mm-hmm. with his army. And he liquidates all of Sulla's people mm-hmm. and vice versa. And it just, I mean, the, the violence just spills and spills and spills. You mentioned something about the people voting, and I think maybe it's, it's useful. It wasn't a democracy, but it's useful to say what what role did the people have in the republic? Yes, they they voted at different times about different things, or at least gave their assent and was collected in different ways. But why don't you say a little bit about how much influence the masses had? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I made a mistake a second ago. Sorry. Marius, Sulla came back, took the command back, then chased Marius away, then went to the east. Marius came back, started the slaughter, then Sulla came back and did his own slaughter. So I got that right now. Um, The people's role is debated. People think, you know, is it a democracy? Is it an oligarchy? Mm -hmm. One thing we know for sure is the vote matters. Mm -hmm. Um, The vote is not rigged. It's not controlled. We know this because Cicero will write to us and be like, wow, the election was yesterday and -and so-and-so won. That was really shocking. Like Mm -hmm. no one thought that was going to happen, but here it is. Mm -hmm. So the elites don't control the vote exactly. They do to some degree, though. I mean, voting is very jan- is gerrymandered by wealth. Mm-hmm. The wealthiest people vote first, and their votes count more. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, after a certain while, the, the very poor get to vote. But by then, the issue is usually decided. Sort of like Hawaii. Or- uh, yeah, right. well, you know, they're first in the nation, right? <laughs> and so the idea is, how much control do they really have? Well, um, I think that the answer is voting matters. But the most important part for the competition is that voting is the judge of the competition. An aristocrat puts himself out and says, people, I should be consul. Look at the wonderful things that I've done for Rome. I've conquered the various peoples. I've done these great things. I brought in a lot of money. Vote for me. And then the rival says, no, no, vote for me and so forth. The people actually are the judge of the competition. Mm -hmm. Now, this is really important. Um, We've all played sports. Okay. The point of the game is to win, but there's no point unless there's a referee, mm-hmm. right? If there are no rules, there's no point to the game. The people are sort of the rules, right? The competition works only when someone judges it. But one of the things the Gracchi brothers did was say, we're on the side of the people. Mm-hmm. So the Senate now says, well, we don't trust the people anymore. Mm-hmm. We don't believe in their judgment. Well, now that the judge is gone, now the referee is gone, what's the point of the game? Mm-hmm. If you don't believe that the people's vote really, really matters anymore. This is all part of this mix of a loss of trust in mm-hmm. how the system is supposed to function. All right. So that's Sulla and Marius. And uh, what did Catiline do? Okay. Sulla and Marius. relatively famous. Yeah, Catiline. Yeah. Uh, Sulla and Marius, um, after they do their slaughters and their liquidations of their enemies, 
the whole of the Roman society steps back for a moment and takes a breath Mm -hmm. for about 15, 20 years and says, look, that was really bad. Okay. What, What we just did there, that was terrible. We should never do that again. But at this point, and this is a point I made in the book we talked about before, all of the generation who were the last of the Republic, they're all teenagers during this time. Mm -hmm. They watch the slaughter in the streets. They're literally watching their father's heads being chopped off Mm -hmm. because they're the political enemies of so-and-so and their heads are being put on spikes in the forum. It's dreadful. And all these young men are watching it happen. So for a while they step back and they say, no, we, we can't, we can't act that way. But the psychological effect is buried deep within them. Mm -hmm. And Catiline is the first one of them who says, maybe I should be the boss after all. And he creates a conspiracy um, with a group of senators who were sort of disaffected by the fact that they have not gotten what they felt was their due. Mm -hmm. And he gives speeches to his followers, which may be true, maybe not. But again, the idea is that he says, look at these immoral, luxurious senators who are treating us like dirt. We should be on top because we come from illustrious families. We're not getting our due. And it's not because of sin or it's not because of whatever. It's because they don't follow the rules of restraint, which make the Republic run. They are therefore bad people. But worse than that, they're destroying the Republic. And therefore, we are justified in killing them. So Catiline gets a group of followers together, hundreds, maybe even thousands when it comes down to it. Mm -hmm. And they form an army. And his plan is to murder the consul Cicero and and his colleague in their beds. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's a great scene where, in fact, Cicero is warned um, by by one of the wives of the conspirators that the conspirators are coming after him. Mm -hmm. So he sets guards by his door when the conspirators come to greet him in the morning. They were going to do a Caesar on him. Mm -hmm. You know, good morning, Caesar. How are you? And then stab him. Mm -hmm. And then Catiline's defeated by the regular army. Cicero declares that he's the savior of the Republic and all this. But the simmering is there, right? The violence is ready. And this is the point. I I hope everyone takes at least this away. It's like, how do you justify violence? You need some justification. Romans know that you can't just stab someone for the sake of stabbing them. Hmm. Their justification is always, look at these immoral people who are treating the Republic badly because they are unrestrained. This is the repeat over and over and over and over again. It's the only language they know. That's internal, but externally, these are barbarians and therefore we should rule them. Well, uh, internally... I mean, they use violence all the time. Look, if you want to go conquer other people, that's... That's That's not a problem. That's not a problem. No, that's... that's They're they're not Roman, they're barbarian, they deserve it. So that's perfectly fine. So then it's just internal. This is all internal, right? We're asking, how did the Romans, they had no problem killing barbarians for the longest time. Right, right. How did they turn the violence in on themselves after hundreds of years of peace? And then why does it happen when it happens? Mm-hmm. And that, what I'm arguing is, is that it happens when the moral story they tell themselves becomes very complicated by the fact that now the, the commands are bigger, the wealth is bigger, all this stuff is bigger than it used to be. Mm-hmm. And, they, and people each think they're in the right. Correct. And, and they're being restrained. And they self-justify by saying, I'm the restrained one, you're the unrestrained one. This is the medium that allows them to justify. Let me make one other comment because this is so important. And many of you have probably read things out of Roman history. You know, they're obsessed with this. Or you read Sallust and Livy and they're like, in the olden days, our, our ancestors were so morally upright and they were restrained and all of this is great, right? Mm. What you're seeing there is this mindset that this is how we're supposed to operate. And when Sallust, for instance, says, but after the fall of Carthage, everyone is acting badly and morality is terrible and we've all fallen in our moral state. What he's saying is not like Rome actually has fallen morals. Mm-hmm. He's a trace of an argument about what morality means. Mm-hmm. And he's saying everyone else is immoral 
but me. But he got kicked out of the Senate for being immoral. Right. Right. <laughs> and so he's just part of a conversation about what it means to be moral. But this conversation is deadly. So what you're saying a little bit uh, off the side is if they only knew the psychological theory about projection, that they would have all understood uh, what they were up to. Well, I, you know, you, you, you <laughs> hope they would listen. But, but no, there's a, there's a lot of projection. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because, again, what is every Roman boy told? Compete, win and be the best but do it according to self-restrained rules. But there's no dictionary definition of restrained. And right. so it's easy to say, I am and you're not. Right, right. All right. So Cicero, in one of his writings, and I think you quote him right near the beginning of your book, says, when things go wrong, none of this will, will stop a person from misbehaving. And he had a whole list of all the things that we, oh, yeah. we do. Do you have that, that it's, list? It's the, first, it's the first passage. Here we go. Yeah. Neither reason nor moderation nor law, nor custom, nor duty has any strength, nor did the judgment and esteem of the citizenry, nor shame at what posterity will think. Yeah. No, none of those things are stopping the bad people from being bad. Yeah, and, and it was disheartening to Cicero, obviously. Yeah. Um, you, you, just to bring that back to another point that you brought up earlier about the difference between our checks and balances, legal system and constitutional system. Obviously, um, if, if a custom can be broken, the, the laws can be broken. People can just say, well, that, that's not what that law means, or we can reinterpret it if we want to be subtle about it. But if we want to be blunt about it, we just say, well, who, who cares? You know, we're, right. not, we're just going to ignore the law. So, so it's, it's an offense, a restraint, but it's, it's not an impermeable, bar- impermeable barrier. That's my frightened maybe, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the we're not Rome, but, but people are people. And laws are as good as the people upholding them. So my, my day job is as a law professor. And I, yeah. I constantly tell my students, law is only as good as the people upholding it. Yeah. And we have to believe in it in order to make it work. And the moment we lose faith in it and say, well, I can't fix this by law, so let's do it by violence, then, mm. then that's the, the frightening moment. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of, I won't go into it, Thomas More, who was a lawyer, talking to his son-in-law, uh, said something very similar when, when the, he said uh, the, the son-in-law wanted to, to reform religion. And, uh, you know, Moore was against being that big of a reformist in spite of the fact that he was a utopian. Uh, But he said, you know, and what are you going to do when you've broken down all the laws and then the devil has come, you know, to to, to see you, you know, and then you have nothing left to to hide from. Of course, he he himself had nothing left to hide (laughs) from at the end of his life, too. The law did not protect him either. No, it is. And and that's the frightening moment, right? The moment when you start saying... I don't trust this is going to work for me anymore. So mm. violence is my solution. Right. Yeah. Because the other side might figure that out too. Well, that's, that's <laughs> also the problem, right? Is that, is that in Rome, everyone has figured this out simultaneously. Yeah. And the violence, it, if you read the book, part one is, is kind of all about like how Roman structures and society works. And this is very interesting. But part two is the bloody, you know, step by step. It's the real roaring story about how things go bad. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of depressing to write, and I'm sure depressing to read. About it. <laughs> and then it just got worse, and then it just got worse, and then it just got worse. And, and so there's... But then there was Augustus. Well, that, well <laughs> but see, he's the authoritarian. Yeah, right? absolutely. The authoritarian he, answer. He no longer requires that sense of moderation from all of the, uh, the, 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 the aristocracy. He gets it from the people. Right. He tells the people, look how restrained I am. And boy, does he insist on that, right? Oh, yeah. And it, it, one of my favorite stories is he even says, all right, now, we're also all going to be restrained in bed. Nobody with anybody else's wife around here. And then he discovers that his daughter and granddaughter have multiple, you know, yeah. and, and he exiles them yeah. just to show that he means it. Yep. Yep. 
You should have saw that coming. <laughs> but but yeah, it's 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 fascinating. It, like any culture, he's the leader in the culture at the end, and the, the republic is gone, and he's the authoritarian. He still uses the language of the republic. Mm-hmm. He still uses the cultural restraint of the republic. Mm-hmm. The culture hasn't changed. He he just fits himself in there. But when we look back, we say, okay, that's yeah. Totally and he tried different. very hard to tell everybody, I, I this is the republic. I, I'm a republican. This is yeah. just the republic, like everything else, right? And he tried to use that language to show it. Yeah. Yeah. All of us pigs are equal. Yeah. <laughs> Some are more equal than others. Um, so now we get to the story about that, that's most famous. And it's very interesting uh, you know, that Caesar, to me, uh, Julius Caesar, has this image which doesn't seem to fit the facts at all. But, but we'll go into that a little bit later. But you make the interesting point that this whole generation around Caesar and the, and the collapse um, of the Republic we're all influenced by all this violence that was taking place during the, the earlier time because they were children. So why don't you tell the, about the players there? And what yeah, so, so Caesar's our main player. Um, mm-hmm. He's a teenager when Sulla is in power. Mm-hmm. Um, Sulla spares his life. Caesar was about to get his head chopped off. And then some friends, um, uh, the reason he was going to get his chopped off, he, he had married young, as Romans uh, tended to do, teenagers. Mm-hmm. And Sulla wanted him to divorce the girl why I'm, I'm forgetting off the top of my head. And Caesar said, no. Mm. And Sulla was like, that's the wrong answer, young man. <laughs> and, and, you know, we're going we're gonna to chop your head off. And, and, and friends had to, you know, like beg for him. Like, he's just a young, he's a boy. Please let him go, yeah, you know. Yeah. And, but Caesar learned the lesson very quickly. It's like, power is what matters. Right. Okay? And he developed a reputation. And whether it's merited or not, I, I don't, I can't tell you. No. It's irrelevant, though, because what matters is the reputation, is that he developed a reputation for being flamboyant, for being deeply in debt, for being immoderate. Stories were told about him, some famous stories. Um, he's 30 years old. Um, he has some sort of middling job, boring office. He's traveling the world, um, and he sees a statue of Alexander the Great, who, of course, had conquered everything by the time he was 33 years old. And Caesar starts to cry. Mm-hmm. And his friends, what are you crying for? And he said, because he conquered the world at my age, and I've done nothing, mm-hmm. right? And so people marked in him this, like, extreme chip on his shoulder that made him a little bit sort of dangerous and immoderate, right? Mm -hmm. So by the time he gets to be um, available to be consul, he has a a fairly good career. He's been a sort of a military hero. Um, He actually won um, a great honor in battle. He saved a citizen's life and he did all kinds of wonderful things. But people are very nervous about him. So nervous, in fact, that when he becomes consul, the Senate does something very unusual. Normally, when you become consul, the Senate sets up for the next year what the territory of the ex-consuls will be to command and control. So if you're the consul, they say, okay, next year the territory is going to be Greece. Mm-hmm. And you, the ex-consul, get sent to Greece and you get to conquer you know, cool stuff over there. Mm-hmm. The next year for Caesar, they set up the woods and tracks of Italy. Mm-hmm. You get to repair the roads. And they did that because they were so nervous about him. Like Something's wrong with him. He's immoderate. He dresses funny. And one, one of the things that Sulla said about him is, beware that ill-belted boy. <laughs> now, that, what's weird to us, what does that mean? He wore his toga very loose with a belt that was very loose. And this was like stylish. I don't, I don't know if there's like a modern equivalent of this. I, like, I can think of one. Yeah. Like, Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, wearing your pants down off your hips. That's possible, yeah. You know? or, or even, I'm imagining the 50s, you know, a kid shows up with bell bottoms. Yeah. Kind of like, <laughs> something's wrong about that boy. Like, he's a little bit too something. He's not restrained, you understand, right, right. right? And so when Caesar becomes consul, they give him the woods and tracks of Italy. 
And this is deeply insulting to him because he wants a real command with real power and no one trusts him with it because they think he's unrestrained. And so he's got another big chip on his shoulder. So he manages to get that changed to we know where, to Gaul, right? Where he heads up to modern France and spends 10 years conquering France and some of England too. Comes back with massive loot, enormous amounts of loot. And his enemies at this point are terrified. Cicero writes, among other people, if, if Caesar comes back, he's going to kill us all. He's going to destroy the Republic. He's going to rob the temples. He's going to steal gold from the widows. He's, I mean, for a person who's like a philosopher and, and fancies himself this deep thinker, Cicero has a real moment of like, like kind of panic, right? And, that, and it's moral panic, again, that Caesar is going to be a thief and he's going to be this immoderate person. I don't know whether Caesar intended it or not. But what matters is the Senate was nervous enough to say, you come back and you come back by yourself, not with your army, just you. And Caesar, of course, is like, I'm not doing that mm -hmm. because I'm not going to walk into my enemy's hands without protection. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, on the other side is Pompey, Caesar's great rival. Mm -hmm. Pompey had spent his career doing more conquering than any person had to that point. He conquers the entire of entirety of, of, of um, Asia Minor. He conquers the whole east of the Mediterranean. The reason that Judea is, is part of the Roman Empire, so that, such that Christ is under the Roman rulers, is because Pompey had conquered that area. Mm -hmm. Down to Egypt he goes. He does all this incredible stuff. He thinks he should be the big boss and everyone should listen to him. So here's Caesar thinking that it should be his show, Pompey thinking it should be his show. You would think that would be enough, but they can't help themselves. They're constantly accusing the other of being immoral, licentious, luxurious, and all of those things. And I think it matters. Mm -hmm. The final piece that really matters um, is just as Caesar is getting into this big struggle with Pompey, a large number of junior senators are accused by one of the censors of being immoral and luxurious, right? Mm -hmm. And they're kicked out of the Senate. Well, rather than feel sorry for themselves and go, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. They just go over to Caesar and they're like, well, if I'm going to get disrespected over here, I'll go hang out with this guy who respects me very much. Mm -hmm. And Caesar says, I'll take you guys on. And this is where we meet people like Mark Antony mm -hmm. and this group of uh, this crowd of, of extremely loyal supporters because this cleft has occurred in the aristocracy. And the dividing line is who's acting morally and who's acting immorally. So someone should be out trying to collect moderate Republicans right now. I, I you know, that's it's. <laughs> All I can tell you is, is that this, this feeling that if Caesar takes over, the Republic is done, and Caesar's followers feel that if he's not given his consulship, the Republic is rigged. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And that's the moment where they say, there's only one solution to our problem, and that's violence. Mm -hmm. And the whole last chapter is about every step of the way of their negotiations, how it seems like it might work, it might work, it might work, and then an accusation is given, but you're immoral. And then the deal's off the table. Yeah. So uh, one of the ideas that, that cover the, the, the range of things, then we'll get to the questions. Um, you, you talk about an idea that people are willing to get enraged about, an idea in your culture which is so important that if people feel it's under attack, you're, you're enraged about it. Right. Okay. So we have some of those ideas. Like if you, but I think something like freedom of speech doesn't really rise to that level mm -hmm. other than Berkeley in the 1960s. You know, that, that, that we, we talk about it, we say it's important, but people are quite willing to give up a lot in that area. So what idea do you think in our culture 
right, and you, you say that in their culture, it's the restraint thing. Mm. What is it in our culture that people are willing to get enraged about? Obviously, slavery was an idea that people right. did get enraged about. And well, you stole my answer. But... Yeah. Oh, sorry. But now, what's going on now? Uh, wow. The remains of that enragement. Um, what a great question. So let me repeat something you said a second ago, because I think that's the key to this book, which is what causes violence? Ask the question, what norms or values violation is important enough to get violent over? Mm -hmm. In Rome, the answer is they had convinced themselves that restraint is what makes a republic run. They accuse each other of luxuriousness and all these terrible things. That's enough to get to violence. Slavery in our, in our society, that was enough to get to violence. Mm -hmm. What now? Uh, you know, free speech? I think voting might get us there. Mm -hmm. um, if someone were to say no more voting, mm -hmm. I, I suspect there might be violence from that. I think that's the core value that I think we would all share. Mm -hmm. I wish maybe, I shouldn't say wish because that's the wrong thing to say. I think free speech should be more important than people's minds that they should be not willing to give it up. Mm -hmm. But I think that voting would be the line that a lot of people would cross. Although I'm very curious what the audience thinks that line might be. But we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. anybody that wants to, yeah, to, to um, uh, also discuss an idea that they think in our culture might do that. Um, so, if you would, if you would say some other elements of what you learned about the Republic and what you think, because you, you yeah. disagreed with a lot of other people, a lot of other scholars that thought it was, it was the luxurious wealth, it was this, it was that. Right. And you're saying, no, it's a cultural value that's really important. And I, I find that fascinating because when there's enough wealth, and we're a wealthy society, but we don't behave like it in a way. Um, when I think about like the buildings that we build, we're not building anything architecturally that lasts because it's, it's, it's not you know, financially mm -hmm. efficient and so on and so forth because we, we approve of that financial to. efficiency, right? Yeah. But we, when we were poor, we used to. Yeah, yeah. And, and it wouldn't be hard to switch that around and say we could, we could make, you know, we could use lasers to, to cut <laughs> big granite things into buildings. You know, we, we, we could do all kinds of things, but we don't do that. And it's interesting because it's not like we're not out to leave a monument behind us, basically. The building but, but Rome was all about leaving a monument behind. To yourself. You, to yourself, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, maybe, maybe Trump Towers count. The, well, the, the comment about the buildings is an interesting one because there was a time when a value of the society was what we should spend our money on is an enormous library that's mm -hmm. beautiful and, and has stained glass and all that. We don't, we don't do that anymore, and it tells us what we value. We're far more individualistic, I think, than we used to be as a society. Or cathedrals before that. Or cathedrals before that, right. Yeah. You know, what do we now, spend our... Little villages built these cathedrals right. that took them a thousand years to build and took half their wealth. And, and they're absolutely gorgeous. Uh, but, but it's interesting that that's where the money went. Yeah. No, and, and <clears throat> you know, your question prompts a lot of thoughts. It's sort of like, what, what do we value? Do we value anything? <laughs> well, no, no. And, and the turn to, indi to individualism is yeah. also kind of a reflection on our culture as well. Right. Um, I'm sorry, I, lost, I had lost kind of the earlier point of your question because I got stuck on the building. So well, that, we'll, we'll just, you know, yeah. just what is, it, what is it that we value highly enough? Yes. And maybe it is individualism. Maybe that, that's, that's part of it because one of the things that sets America apart and has had a big influence, we don't, you, you talked about the competitiveness in Rome mm -hmm. and that the sons and the grandsons and everybody had to outdo their grandfathers. There haven't been a lot of cultures like that. Right. A lot of cultures... You're supposed to keep your head low until the other generation's gone, and then you can step forward. And if you do anything that makes them look bad, 
while they're alive, that's losing face. Right. Right. And, 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 but America is definitely uh, you want your children to do better. I mean, not everybody, but that's a cultural value. You want your children to outdo you. Right. Even while, while you're alive, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And, and highly individualistic in a way that, that Rome sort of was and maybe the past in the United States wasn't. And though the question you'd ask is sort of like, what lessons did I take? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one is, is that narratives of decline um, are self-fulfilling. Mm-hmm. And the other is that Rome committed suicide. Mm-hmm. At the time the Roman Republic falls, it has no external enemies to speak of that are in any real danger to it. Mm-hmm. Internally, it has scads of money. There's vast inequality, mm-hmm. but that's an issue that could have been fixed with a little bit of careful thought, mm-hmm. right? There's no reason for the Republic to fall, none, except their own cultural choices. Mm-hmm. And that is what worries me um, when I look at, at our country is that there's no reason for us whatsoever to have the problems that we have if you just sit back and say, there's no external enemies. It's not as though, you know, our, we've been attacked uh, and, and our economy has collapsed. You know, as Abraham Lincoln says, if, if we are to die, it'll be by suicide. And you have to ask yourself, what are the cultural values that we're fighting over that might lead to our suicide? Mm-hmm. And that is what worries me a great deal. Mm-hmm. So that goes to your question. What is it? And, and I guess I, I cannot wait again for what people think, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I do worry that, you know, the individualistic streak in our society leads us to become far more emotional about our problems than we might otherwise be. We feel instantly offended in ways that we otherwise might not have been in a more communal society. Could it be, just for everyone to think about, a loss of control of our individual lives mm. through maybe AI, the fear of AI? And, and that, that fear is extremely exaggerated because um, there's always electricity, you know, you can pull the plug on. <laughs> so... So, Until it starts making its own drones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but uh, there's all kinds of there's all kinds of issues of of, of the concentration of wealth, etc. Right. And power. Right. But there's always been that. It's always been you know how much and and how can you bring it back? As you said in Rome, they could have just redistributed some of the land and not all of it, and so bring the inequality down. And we with with our tax, we already are redistributing money. We could do this in a very clear and efficient way, so that so that there was, you know, uh, well, let's not go into that. No, I, I but, was going to say. But there's, lo- there's lots of ways to deal with this problem right. from a legal point of view, as lawyers, you know, of course, discuss. But Well, no, I, I firmly believe, and you can call me overly optimistic if you want, that there's not a problem that we face that we can't fix mm-hmm. if we were to turn down the emotional, yeah. you know, attachment to it. And the Romans simply could not turn off their emotional attachment to their problems. If they saw a problem, it was because someone was immoral. That was always the answer to them. Mm-hmm. An economist would say, no, this is like a distribution problem. Like, no, it's because someone's immoral. Right. If, if, even if the barbarians invade, it's because General so-and-so was off steeping himself in luxury instead of paying attention to the borders. Mm-hmm. Every single time they come back to this is the explanation for their problems. Mm-hmm. And that's what causes the emotional fire every time they face a problem. Interesting, because to me, the emotional fire uh, ratcheted up with 9-11. Um, and the fear that that caused, mm. that, that we are vulnerable when we thought we were invulnerable. And, and, and the, the language that was used at the time, terrible as it was, but it, it's unprecedented, this kind of attack and so on is unprecedented. But it was only, you know, how many years? 60 years after World War II. Mm. And during World War II, that many people died every single day for six years in a row. You know, the 3,000, 4,000 people every day died. For six years in a row. So unprecedented is not the right word to use for it, but it definitely gets the emotions going. 
I, I, I would agree, and I, I think I would put into this book that same observation, which is the fall is psychological. Mm-hmm. It's a belief that causes fear, which causes anger, which causes violence. Yeah. And the thing, if you're an American, you've got to ask yourself, where do I stop that process yeah. of fear turning into violence? And I, I try to tell my law students that the rule of law is one way to stave that off. Mm-hmm. It's not perfect. I certainly don't think it's perfect. I don't think the, the country's perfect in any way. We've got so many problems. But I think that turning the emotions down is one of the things that I took from this book because when I see the end of this, I see a, a group of people who could solve their problems, but they're so worked up and terrified. And of course, the violence that they'd experience as youths absolutely is helping to push that terror. But that's what's driving it, right? And you want to actually sit every single one of them down, give them a Xanax and be like, look, you, don't, you can actually, you can get through this. If you really sit down and just relax for a minute, Caesar can be his counsel for a year. He's not going to destroy the Republic. Caesar, they're not going to kill you. Mm-hmm. So everyone chill. And I don't mean to be overly simplistic because I, I don't want people to think that this is just the answer is everybody relax and be happy. That's not true. Right. But they could have faced their problems in a way that was not so emotionally fiery, such that violence appeared to be the justifiable response. But but you have to be very observant because um, something like you see people say, oh, why does anybody study uh, literature? Anybody mm-hmm. study history? So on. it's like like we have nothing to learn from the past. Mm-hmm. Oh, we have tons to learn from the past. I know we don't learn from it very often, but but there's lots of information there we could learn from. But the interesting thing is 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 something much subtler than that, like. People saying, you know, higher education isn't really financially worth it. You, can, mm-hmm. you, you, you don't get your money back out of that. And it's true under certain circumstances. But you, you wonder whether that's an argument that's hiding a different emotion, which is, I don't want people to be educated. Mm-hmm. I, I want to I tamp that down. I don't like that idea that everybody should be educated and therefore be a, a more informed citizen. I like it when we can get emotions going instead, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that to me is, is the thing to watch for because, uh, you know, that, that's, we, we need, we need, uh, as you said, a little bit of detachment. You don't have to be a philosopher. I, I, that's, that's not necessary, but a little bit of detachment from the emotions that are being presented on a daily basis. And, and now in this enhanced me- method of, 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 uh, getting to us with, with, uh, yeah, I, I, second videos. <laughs> I worry because Cicero to me is such a cautionary story. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is one of the most brilliant human beings who ever lived. Um, his philosophy, his writings, his, his ability, his translation abilities, just, just inc- a genius, really, in every way. And you talk about education. He's like one of those highly educated people in the ancient world. And if you, if you took that man today and just had his brain, he, he would be you know, a brilliant scholar, you know, absolutely. And yet at the end, he fell prey to it too. Mm-hmm. And so education is part of the answer, but it's also recognizing that even a highly intelligent person can fall into these traps. Yeah. And that's, I mean, when I was reading that, I was like, come on, Cicero, I'm going to hold it together. Here. <laughs> but, but, but you can see him kind of falling apart, right? Mm-hmm. And he's writing treatises to himself about, you know, there's no perturbation of the soul for the philosopher. And the philosopher is a person of no de- attachments whatsoever. And then he writes letters to his friend like, oh, my God, Caesar's going to kill us all. And, yeah. and you wonder kind of, you know, can we learn to, to, to control those animal, the lizard brain, basically. Yeah. Like, you know, how do we turn down the lizard brain? Because it bears repeating. I mean, this is a story of the lizard you're not, brain. You're not saying we're reptilians, I'm sure. No, 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 no. Okay. Not. No, when I say that, I mean the amygdala. I mean, yeah, I, I know. You, you, know, know. you all know what I mean by this, right? <laughs> Sorry about brain. that. Very um, bad joke, but we have, a, we have a certain percentage of the population that... 
Sure. No, what, what I mean, of course, that. is like the, <laughs> the center of the brain that's the fight or flight reaction, yeah, right? Yeah. This is a story of the fight or flight reaction taking over. Mm-hmm. And the trigger is, ironically enough, the idea that self-control is important. Isn't yeah. that paradoxical? It's very you think paradoxical. About? Yeah. You know, the Romans, so <laughs> the Romans tell themselves self-control is the key to good governance. And everyone's like, yes. And then that is the thing that runs the engine of their fight or flight reaction. Yeah. All right. So. We're not that far down the arc, uh, you know, towards authoritarianism, but we're getting the taste of it, of, uh, you know, the emotional appeal, uh, et cetera. So why don't we have some questions from the audience? Who would like to ask a question? Uh, positing um, oligarchies in power and, and popularity and influence uh, in, a, in a positive way, and you cited Colin Powell, mm-hmm. but I wasn't clear where you were going with that. Oh. All right. Can you can you elaborate? Sure, sure. What I meant was that Colin Powell was was uh, had a higher trust rating with people by a lot. The, the Q ratings or whatever they call it. It was in the '60s, and everybody else in the George uh, W. Bush cabinet at that time was 40 or less. And it was after 9/11 and everything, but even so. And what I was saying was, trust is not based on virtue. It's based on whether you trust the people to go along with you on what your project is. And so in the cabinet, the person they didn't trust was the person who had a certain number of principles, and not perfect or anything like that, but a certain number of principles that he would not have crossed, and therefore they couldn't trust him to tell them what they were up to. So they compromised it. That, that was my point. They, 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 they compromised him so that, so that they could then trust him in the cabinet. Uh, it's, 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 it's based on that. I'll be right to you. Here's another one. You were considering what what line might cause people in the United States to uh, kind of have a tremendous reaction. And Mm. I was thinking uh, the loss of due process. Mm. When you look at countries like China and Russia and Iran, where they can just come in and take you and put you in prison without any uh, due process, that would be something that would get, if that ever started to happen, uh, it would create a a big blowback. And we saw a little bit of it when Trump came out with the military mm. and crossed the square in front of the white house. And, uh, a lot of people were upset by that. So I don't know if that's a line, but that's one that I thought of. It might well be. I mean, and I, in a way I would hope so. I mean, at, at the moment in which the government starts throwing people in jail without due process, I sort of hope that the populace would sort of rise up and resist. I don't know. I mean, or would everyone just be staring in their phones being like, yeah, whatevs. You know, my worry, of course, is that remember the the trouble with Rome is that there's no there's no definition of proper behavior. And so everyone can accuse everyone else of bad behavior. And my worry is, is that someone will say that's a lack of due process. And someone else will say, no, no, this is perfectly fine process. And who would decide? And normally we would say, oh, the Supreme Court will decide. But good Lord, you know, our Supreme Court is, is as much a part of the fractioning as, as it ever has been, right? There are people now who are like, well, I'm not going to listen to whatever they have to say. And, and without judges, remember I said before, what's the point of a game without referees? If you don't trust the referee, why do you play the game? That's, that's a little worrisome to me. Um, you know, this book kept me up nights when I was writing <laughs> it. And, I, and I, I don't know what the answer is exactly is on that one. I w- I'm agreeing with you, but what I'm saying is I don't know what the result would be. So you were asking and struggling with the question of what is it that would lead a people to engage in this kind of suicidal behavior, Mm -hmm. lose their calmness, lose their ability to see things dispassionately. But the question that I have 
is you're not thinking about it in the standpoint of who has an interest in causing people to behave that way. Mm. You're sort of thinking about it as if somehow this spontaneously develops. And I think in any political system, there are entrepreneurs that are, and I don't mean that in the business sense, but there are entrepreneurial people who are looking for ways to seize power. Mm-hmm. And they look at a way to manipulate the symbol system in the culture to let them seize power. And it's clear now to us that by stirring up this kind of emotion, it's a great tool to take power. It's a great tool to distract the masses. And it's a great tool to attract and retain the undying loyalty of people who are willing to commit violence and to die for you. And I think, so my question is, in Rome, I guess, did people think that way? Were they honestly engaged in the symbol system or were they manipulating the symbol system in order to get people riled up and keep them there? And is that not more or less what's happening today? Look, can we just stop there? Because I think you've made the whole point. <laughs> that's 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 a, a fantastic observation. And here's where we may be in worse stead than in Rome. Okay. Um, I cannot peer into the head of any ancient person. I talk about this in the introduction. I, I can't tell who's manipulating versus who really believes it versus... All I can tell you is they seem very much to actually believe it in Rome. I, I think they, they really do. Even Caesar, who is a propagandist, and he writes... In this, the last chapter, I point out in his book, The Civil Wars, when he explains why I did this, like, why did I cross the Rubicon? Why did I attack Rome? He says, well, my enemies were shockingly, they were luxurious, immodest, and all these things, right? He says all this stuff. Of course, this is propaganda. Of course it is, right? How many people can it reach? How many people believe it? How many people listen, right? In Rome, the answer is probably far less than what we have now. And that is a difference, and that is a frightening difference, that we have it far, far worse. I mean, the average Roman in the forum is not walking around reading Twitter, right? He'll hear a speech. Um, He might, maybe if he's literate, might read what Caesar has to say, but the reach of this stuff is not so direct and not so immediate and not so all-pervasive. I take back all-pervasive. I'm sorry, it it is all-pervasive in the sense that every child is taught this, but it's not so manipulable in the same way as it is now. So your point is the dark side of this talk, which is we're not Rome in a lot of good ways. This is one way in which our emotions are far more manipulable than they were in this period. And that's a frightening thought. Very frightening thought. I love that comment, though, because I think that captures the whole heart of what I'm trying to argue. And it's, and as you say, it's hard to tell who's doing what with their, with their uh, motives. Um, yeah. You just have to look at the outcome um, as to why they're doing it and then take a guess. But, you know, it's like a lot of things. You know, you, you go in as a young person believing in the system, and by the time you're 10 or 15 years in, you're, you're, you're switching over to, um, you know, making it work for you. So, so I'm sure there's a lot of young believers in Washington, D.C., too, but, but there's probably not so many old ones. Thank you. Fascinating discussion. Um, you were saying that one of the issues that may glue the American people together mm-hmm is the notion of freedom of speech. Would that glue be the stronger were freedom of speech restrained in this country? Hmm. What, are you, what a question. What a great question. 
I have to. So let me let me. Oh, I'll right. ask a question up to your question. Which, when you say restrained, how would you define that in the context of freedom of speech? Well, I'm addressing a lawyer who will know what's going <laughs> yeah. on in this country. Um, I'm not a lawyer, but you can probably tell from my voice I come from the UK. Mm-hmm. And we have certain constraints on freedom of speech, uh, notably constraints against uh, incitement to racial violence. Right. So that's one way of thinking about it. One of the arguments for the American free speech regime is that actually allowing people to say the awful stuff they want to say takes away its power. And when you hide it, and only people can find each other online, you know, skulking around in the shadows. That makes it so much the stronger. I think there's some empirical evidence to support that in the sense of, and it's very ironic you just asked this, because I'm putting together a course on the First Amendment, which I hope to teach next year. Um, and I read a, a really interesting article about how those kind of laws that you mentioned end up actually creating a backlash. Uh, and you end up seeing more attitude of, of you know, racial resentment and anti-Semitism and these sort of things than you otherwise would. But I think that your point is bigger here is that in the United States, if we restrain speech somewhat, how would that change our attitude towards it? My worry is that some people would say, oh, the system is rigged against me and my ideas, and therefore I trust it even less than I did before. And that, again, that's the terrifying moment for me when people say, I don't believe this set of laws can work for me. And there's, let me state clearly, and I know we're on camera here, but there are a lot of people in this country who have plenty of reason to believe, gosh, this set of laws really doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Right? That, and that's a failure of our country. It's unequivocal, I will say that. But the solution is to say, let's make it work, not let's scrap it and, and you know, say it, it's pointless and rigged, right? And that, I think, would be my fear, is that you, if you were to restrain it, a lot of people would say, well, this doesn't work for me, so let's not bother. And that's the moment where people are very tempted to violence. Because if they say, the laws don't work for me, what are my options? And the frightening option is, let's go attack people. And that I worry about. I think the 60s in America is really uh, gives a lot of information and examples of that because people were able to express themselves and, and then were violent about it as well on, on several issues, the war in Vietnam and on racial issues. And I, think, I don't think a lot of people take away from that that all that violence and expression actually let off a lot of steam. Uh, it also changed things. Mm. So it's, it didn't, it didn't just, it's not just one thing or another, but it was an outlet. And that you, the society could take a million people, you know, descending on Washington, D.C. And, uh, and, and protesting something. And yet we could continue on if we, if we kept their trust to some degree or another. And I think just to follow on that, that great point is that when people have that freedom of speech, they can believe and trust, hey, there's a chance that I can change this to make it work for me, whereas before I might not have any chance at all. Yeah. Uh, Could you comment on whether you think the violence that occurred on January 6th is representative of the same violence that happened in Rome, or was it just sort of a one-off thing? And the judges seem to be punishing people that took part in that violence. Do you think those referees are doing enough or not enough? The answer to the first question is, I ask myself, how did a person get to the point where they're hitting police officers with American flags? What got them there? Because presumably they didn't start off life, you know, like, I want to beat people up, right? And what must have gotten people there is the feeling that these laws don't work for me. 
The system is against me. It's, it's rigged and it's being controlled and manipulated by evil people who want to destroy the country I know and love. I'm not excusing, and I'm not even saying that's the right attitude. I'm explaining what the attitude is, like how, how people get there. Of course, I personally think the right answer is you're not allowed to do that, right? We are a country of laws, and no matter how badly you feel, violence is not permissible. It's funny, I, I'm having an ongoing conversation with a good friend of mine, deep philosophical, and I'm of the position that, that violence is never permissible in a, rec, in a representative republic. It just isn't, right? And he disagrees, and he says there could become times when it's possible, at which point I say, well, then at that point, it's not a republic anymore anyway. And so, fair enough. I don't want to lose the thread of your question. Um, But you see the strain of what I've described in this book, and this does frighten me, in the country amongst people who would say, evil people are running stuff, and there's no choice but violence because the laws will not work. That's the terrifying moment that I keep coming back to, that I really want to impress on everyone. And I think the job of a judge is to do two things, to say, first of all, I'm going to punish you according to the law. But second, I'm going to make a statement. You did not need to do this. The laws function and they will function. Sometimes you do not get what you want under the laws, but we must continue following the law even if you lose. Um, The key element of a republic is the ability to lose. Republic functions only when you lose an election and you say, fine, I'll get the next one. Otherwise, a republic it just doesn't function, right? There's, there's no point anymore. And there came a point in Rome when Caesar is running for consul and everyone says, if he wins, it's all over. And he says, if I don't win, it's all over. And the proper attitude is to say, I'm going to run. And if I lose, I'll get the next one. That trust, remember we talked about trust a little bit earlier, the trust that if I'm an aristocrat and if you're an aristocrat and I'll run and and if I don't win, I might get the next one and we'll trade. And the belief that I can get the next one is the definition of a republic functioning. And what causes it not to function is the fear that it won't happen the next time, that I will be forever barred, that it is rigged and there's no chance for me. And that, I think, is what the judges in that case need to very much make clear to the defendants and the general public Violence is not the answer. The laws do work. You'll lose this one. You didn't, your candidate didn't win. The next one, you'll have a chance. And, and that's how we're going to make this work so that all of our children aren't facing constant violence from people who say, I won't get the next one, so I've got to get my, my, my way by force. I, you know, one other thing to say is that I suspect that, that all of us sitting in this room are probably very news aware. We probably read the news more than, than you know, kind of... But I think the judges, from what I have read in their sentencing um, speeches have emphasized these points. Whether or not the general public is, is reading them, you know, there's a lot of material out there. There's a lot of content, as we say these days, a lot of podcasts. And, and does the message get out? I, I, I couldn't tell you. The way you described a, a well-functioning republic reminded me that that's a well-functioning marriage as well. <laughs> no, the, the, the well-functioning marriage is there is no next one. <laughs> yes. Um, to to behave the way Roman should behave. Right. Um, so my question is like, what happened to the offices that was kind of more plebeian facing, for example, tribunate? Um, yeah. So how did the people who are occupying those offices kind of learn uh, to behave the same way? Okay, the first thing to remember is, so um, you're, you're, let me give some definitions of what you just said um, for everyone in the audience. Um, there's an office called Tribune of the Plebs, And its purpose is to protect the common people. And it has some interesting aspects to it. 
Um, one of which is that the, the tribune himself is personally sacrosanct. You cannot physically touch a tribune in anger without some religious sort of, this is one of the very rare moments where like, if you do this, the gods will be mad at you. Yeah. <laughs> this is one of the very rare moments that if you touch a tribune, the gods will be mad at you. Okay. And their job is to protect the people. Now, the, the point to remember though, is that these are not the people themselves. This is an aristocrat. They are always aristocrats. Um, they are plebeians in the old sense that their families used to be commoners, but now they're very wealthy. Um, Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus are among the wealthiest people on the planet, okay? And so when they're protecting the people, that's their job. But this is not like, please do not think of Roman history. Please, please, please do not as like the people versus the oligarchy. It, it, that is an old canard. It's an old myth. Um, it's largely created, I'm not making this up, by, by um, communists in Hollywood in the 1950s. Like, <laughs> I'm not, I'm serious. Like, I'm Spartacus, right? And they're, they're fighting on behalf. And then there's like, the, the, the aristocrats are a lot like Sir, um, um, Sir Lawrence Olivier is like lolling in the tub with wine and grapes. And the people are down in the tavern, like drinking. And No, <clears throat> okay. <laughs> this works very differently. Like, they, they kind of support each other. And the, the people support the aristocrats by voting for them and supporting them and following them around. And the aristocrats are supposed to take care of the people. And that's what Tiberius believes he's doing. And so <clears throat> when you go back to this, you're talking about the role of the people in the Republic. So a senator who looks at Tiberius would say, it is well that you are caring for the people. That's what you're supposed to do. What is not well is you getting above your station and telling the rest of your elders what they should be doing with their farmland. That's where he goes wrong. Did that answer your question? I'm sorry. Okay. Professor Blonick. Hi, Greg. Thank you very much for this presentation. Very happy to be here. Um, I'd like to take our discussion back to um, the concept of emotional involvement and emotional detachment. Uh, you mentioned um, how you know Cicero, being a philosopher that he is, he lost a sense of his emotional control. And if I'm not mistaken, he was one of the biggest advocates of Stoicism, you know, along the names of Epictetus, Seneca, and Emperor Marcus Aurelius. Uh, my question is, is Stoicism uh, for, you know, the, at the time and during the current times, is uh, the concept of emotional detachment, is it always uh, beneficial for a well-functioning republic, mm -hmm. or may an involvement of emotions in decision-making you know, for the, the benefit of a well-functioning republic uh, may be the better option in certain cases? Well, that, that's, what a great question. Um, uh, Greg was in my property class last fall, and I, I mentioned something like this in class, so this is for the benefit of everyone. Uh, we are human beings. We're not robots. We're not Vulcans. Um, we should not be emotionally detached as we go through life because there are injustices in the world, Right to which we should properly, I think, um, be angry. It is, it's well to be angry sometimes, right? It's okay to look at a situation and say, this is wrong and I don't like it. Where I think you go wrong is there's a moment when you take that anger and instead of pushing it into sort of productive areas of the frontal lobe where you say, okay, now what am I to do about it? You fall back into your flight or flight panic mode and you say, and now I'm going to punch somebody. And, and there to me is the dividing line, right? So I'm not asking us to be unemotional or emotionally detached. I don't think we can do it. I don't think the human being is designed even to do it. But, but philosophers from time immemorial have told us that we are to channel our emotions to productive ends, to pause, to take that breath, to step back and say, I'm angry at this injustice. What am I going to do about it? As opposed to, now I'm going to punch somebody about it, right? 
And there, I think the Romans failed. And this is interesting because there are Roman um, aristocrats who claim to be Stoics. They don't act very Stoic during this final you know, period, right? Um, Cato the Younger is, is one of the classic examples of this. Uh, in the book, I talk about him at great length. This guy is the moralist's moralist. I mean, he wants to go back to the olden days and he wants it in the worst way. He even dresses funny. Uh, he, he wears clothing that he sees on statues that are hundreds of years old. This would be like a United States senator getting dressed up in breeches and a three-cornered hat and a wig and showing up on the Senate floor being like, this is how it's supposed to be, like in the old days. I mean, it's weird, right? And so the people kind of lose that balance here. And I, I'm telling you, I mean, you know, I, I try to keep that balance in my life, but nobody's perfect. But I think we just have to be aware of it when it's happening, right? And what I would almost want to say to somebody who's like, I'm going to go beat a police officer with, a, with a, an American flag is, step back a second. You know, you're angry. You may have very good reasons to be angry at the world. Like things may not be going so well in a lot of ways for you. Is this the solution though? Mm-hmm. And that's the question we keep have to coming back to. And we have to be very sensitive to people's anger. We really do. And, and, and as a lawyer, I dealt with a lot of very angry people in my life, right? <laughs> and I had to ask myself, you know what? I acknowledge your anger. I understand your anger. I even respect your anger in a lot of situations. How are we going to go forward with it with you not punching the judge or the opposing party in the face? Yeah. And, and that's where I'd like to hope to get to. You can always ask the question, you know, what did that policeman have to do with it? Your anger. That's not the cause of your anger. He's probably even thinking the way you do. Yeah. All right. We have time for one or two more questions. How are you doing, Professor? Uh, so earlier you were talking about that line that you cross uh, when you breach violence. Mm-hmm. I think the gentleman back there referenced the loss of due process. You referenced the loss of voting rights. And it would seem to me, especially when you talk about voting rights due process, it ultimately depends on who is losing those things mm. and the what. You know, when you look at the rate of felony disenfranchisement in particularly the southern states, undoubtedly it bleeds this country a lot more red than it otherwise would be. So I just wonder... You also referenced inequality, mm. and I was curious, is there an unacceptable level of inequality that you saw in Rome at the time that that contributed to it, or is there such a thing? Do empires that always fall within always fall from the top, or can it ever fall from the resulting loss of uh, resulting inequality that has just grown to excess? Let me, um, I, I am in no way qualified to answer that question for American society, <laughs> so... Let me answer it for Rome, though, because this, this goes back to the question I just answered with Tanzi a second ago. Um, one of the old canards about the fall of the Republic is that it's the people versus the aristocrats because inequality's gotten so great that revolution rises from above or from below, right? And this just is not so. I mean, if there's a revolution in Rome, the civil war in Rome is not top versus bottom. It's actually, imagine a triangle with top and then lots of bottom, and then it splits in half, and they fight this way. And one of the great mysteries of the Roman Republic is why do the people on the bottom on this side string up to these folks? And why do the people on the bottom on this side string up to these folks such that they're all fighting each other? One thing we want to say is that there is massive inequality in Rome. We know this. But it's not the inequality between the urban poor and the aristocrats that causes ultimately the problem. It's actually inequality amongst the aristocrats. Some are getting extremely wealthy and some are getting sort of just sort of wealthy. And that is causing their immense hatred for each other, right? And so interestingly, when you talk about inequality, it's that little slice of the, um, of the population that's having the fight. Whereas the poor in Rome, bluntly, were always poor. They, they kind of just always were. And the aristocrats were always rich. 
And that's just how it was. And it went that way for hundreds and hundreds of years. Why would that inequality kick in now? It only kicked in when the aristocrats stopped being so homogeneous amongst themselves. There's a great moment in the book. Um, in the 300s, an aristocrat is kicked out of the Senate because he owns a silver plate. How luxurious of him, right? Do you see, like, a silver plate? And, and this is because he's done something which is unlike anybody else, right? He's gone beyond. By the end of the Republic, we've got people who have more money. I mean, like, you know... Um, uh, Marcus Licinius Crassus, ably played by Sir Lawrence Olivier, and various other people have so much money compared to some other aristocrats that this causes incredible infighting. Caesar is one of these people. In order to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, he goes into massive debt. And one of the knocks on him was he wants to invade our republic so he can steal from the temples to pay off his debt and steal from widows. And he's going to kill us and take, us our, take all of our money because he owes so much money he has to keep up that way. So I think that's the inequality we're talking about in Rome. I, I simply can't comment on whether there's a line in American society. Although the, it comes back to my main point is, the worry is the moment when someone looks at the system and goes, there's never any, there, there will never be a chance for me ever. Hmm. No amount of fixing is going to fix it. No amount of change is going to fix it. I can't vote to fix it. Can't Nothing. Can't speak to fix it. My only option is violence. And that's the moment where we as a society have failed that person and have failed ourselves and are in grave danger. When you can't walk up to someone and say, it'll be all right if we can work this out. That's the real, that's the real problem. All right, one last question. Yes, uh, this question is about trust. And trust was what made Rome so successful for 450 years. Mm -hmm. I take that and I look at our own society and one of the things that we have lost trust in as a society is the voting system, how to count the votes. Mm. And do you think there would be any benefit or would it be a disbenefit if they federalized the voting system in a way that everyone could trust it? And I, I don't think we're there yet to do it, mm. but that would be a utopian thing because with every single municipality having their own system – uh, from counting them ballots by hand where there can be errors to voting machines where there there's uh, uh, social commentary that people from out of space have uh, yeah. controlled the voting machines. What do you think? This those, is those, those pesky Italians. With their... <laughs> um, you know, my, my worry about federalizing them would be that you'd get the counter narrative, which is now it is really all rigged by the big powers that be. I mean, that, that's what I would worry about. Um, I think that the narrative that the voting system doesn't work is a little bit overblown. I think most people trust it. The worry is the people who don't. How do you get them back into the fold of believing that it does work? I don't have a clear answer to that. Um, some, I, the commentary here is like, everything has to be paper ballot day of. Well... You know, I mean, here in California, I love my week ahead ballot, you know, I <laughs> do it in my pajamas on the you know kitchen counter. That's fine. Um, there has to be there's got to be messaging. I mean, one of the biggest things is you need to say to the young people of the world, this works. It is trustworthy. It will work. Trust that it will work. I don't know if we can convince them. I mean, things fall apart, you know, as the old saying goes. One of the things that could fall apart is the people's belief that it's all rigged. That is, again, the terrifying moment. I will finish with just a, a Roman commentary. The Romans had their own issues with voting. 
um, there was massive fear of bribery. They're always worried about bribery. And Gaius Marius, who I mentioned before, had one of the most ingenious ideas. He um, passed a law around the year 115 BC or so, somewhere in there, um, that when voting day came, all the voters had to pass through this sort of like scaffolding structure. They walked single file through the scaffolding structure to cast their vote. And the idea was, as they walked through the structure, nobody could come up to the side of them and pass them money. So even in Rome, there was concern about stop the steal. <laughs> and, and so the more we put structures into place to build that sense of trust, the happier I am. Is it federalizing? Maybe that has its own problems. But as long as the message is out that this is fair, this is safe, I sleep just a little bit better at night. How do we do it? Uh, people are more expert than I am in that area. But I agree with you in principle and definitely with the sentiment. And one last comment about your financial inequality uh, issue. I think, uh, as, as you said, uh, it's the perception that the system is going to possibly work for anybody. Yeah. That, that's the most important. I mean, because uh, that inequality is all, there's always going to be a hierarchy. When I worked at a, at, a, at a department store when I was in high school, I worked as a busboy in their restaurant. I got $1.10 an hour, and, and the cooks got $1.12 an hour. And the waitresses got a dollar fifteen an hour plus tips, and the assistant manager was a dollar twenty five an hour. The hierarchy was perfectly clear with just those increments of cents per hour of who was important and who wasn't important. When I was working in Wall Street at a law firm, the increments were twenty five thousand dollars between you know this pay of this partner and this pay of the other partner and stuff like that. And it was all about where they fit in the system and not the amount. So a wealthier and wealthier society, we have to figure that out, mm. that, that there, it's great if everybody can live better and, and whatever engine will drive that is a great idea, but we have to do something about the perceived fairness of the system so that everybody can get ahead that wants to, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's the crucial thing because I don't think anything will ever happen to, to make it equal. Um, as Mark Twain said, if you, if you took all the money in the world and you spread it around so everybody had an equal amount, within three years it would all end up in the same hands it was in before they, they, they evened it out. Um, yeah. Because that's, that's probably what happened. That's, happened. that's what happens in communist countries. You know, it ends up in the leadership. Yeah, I'll, I'll close with that, which is um, the fall is psychological. And psychology is not just your own beliefs. There's a reality behind it. And if people truly do not believe that they're getting a fair shake and have evidence of it, that's a frightening moment, too. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club. In its 121st year of enlightened discussion, thank you very much. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.